0: And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commissioned people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to
1: go into all the world and preach the gospel, because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. We continue our journey through missions history today, and we're going to talk about missions during the Reformation. Today, our guest is Dr. Ray Van Est. Dr. Van es is the Dean of the School of Theology and Missions and a Professor of Biblical Studies at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. He has published several books, scholarly essays on biblical studies, pastoral ministry, and church history. Most importantly, Dr. Van es is one of the most impactful professors that I've had and known in my life. As an undergraduate, God used him in a powerful way to instill in me a love for God, a love for His Word, And I'm just really grateful for his influence in my life and looking forward to this conversation today. Dr. Van S, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate your kind words. It's a joy to get to work with faithful folks like you.
1: Awesome. Well, today we're talking about missions in the Reformation. So up to this point, we've looked at kind of the Apostolic Age. We've looked some at Scottish and Celtic mission. We've looked at mission in the Middle Ages. And now we're coming up to the Reformation. So, can you just kind of help us define what time period are we talking about when we talk about the Reformation?
0: Yeah, we're basically talking about the 16th century. No historical era is cleanly defined. History doesn't work that way, but generally the 16th century. Typically starting the Reformation, noting that at 1517 and going into the early
1: 1600s. Okay. Why was the Protestant Reformation necessary?
0: That's a great question. And uh, a few years ago at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, when I and others were making a big deal of it, some folks were saying, yeah, why is it a big deal? Or even were saying, we shouldn't celebrate this. This is a sad thing. And I am happy to argue, even at more length than we'll do today, about the importance and the necessity of the Reformation. In the most succinct way, the Reformation was necessary because the gospel had largely been lost. That's a big claim. And I don't mean that nobody in the time at all knew the gospel, but largely across Christendom, the gospel had been replaced by various forms of ritualism, superstition, and legalism. So when that happens, then something else is going to come into that vacuum. And in this era, power, wealth, prestige was really what was filling the vacuum. And since the gospel is the organizing center and power for the church, then you're also going to have division. So some people say, well, we shouldn't celebrate the Reformation because it divided the church. And there, depending on how well I know the person, how snide I want to be, I'll say, well, you haven't read about the 14th century very well then and up because the Reformation happens because the church is already split. You had two popes, and then you had three popes, them excommunicating one another. Because when you lose the gospel, you lose the center, which holds. So we could say more, but that's essentially it.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. You know, one of the things we've been looking at as we kind of trace through missions history, church history, is, is the geographic hubs and centers at times change depending on where things are happening, as the gospel's expanding, as the church is taking root, these kinds of things so when we think about this era, the, the time of the Reformation, what were some of the key geographic hubs, centers for the church during this time?
0: Yeah, I don't even like the way you have said the question. Some, right? Because there's lots of little pieces, but Wittenberg with Luther is where things really kick off. And then with the printing press, that's spreading and lots of folks are getting in on it. But Luther's area there around Wittenberg is crucial. Then Strasbourg with Bucer, And then... Calvin's in Paris where he gets in trouble, has to climb out of a window, kind of like with bedsheets to escape, and just wants to go and do his study and get stuck providentially in Geneva. So that's where he settles in. That becomes then another key hub. Eventually, it gets to England and Scotland.
1: You mentioned there, you know, Luther and Calvin. Obviously, when we think about the Reformation, we think of those two for sure as kind of the key leaders. And this is a somewhat, I think, debated conversation. Topic, but would love to hear your thoughts. In your opinion, how focused on the Great Commission were the leaders of the Protestant Reformation? How focused were Luther and Calvin? Were they concerned with global mission?
0: Great question, because you're right. So many people miss it. And they were absolutely focused on this. One of the problems is we have our general ideas about people or our movements, and we often don't engage them directly. If you engage them directly, this becomes abundantly clear. In fact, I think one of the reasons why we so badly misunderstood the Reformers is that we first missed that they were pastors. And because we missed that they were pastors, we missed that they were evangelists and missionaries. And we unintentionally, no doubt, import this modern and erroneous idea that if somebody is concerned with robust theology, then they are not ardent evangelists. And that problem continues amongst us. The reformers, even if people differ with them on different places, and we all do, they give us a powerful portrait of these things held together in the institutes. So Calvin's main book that endures, he mentions that his writing was intended to help his fellow countrymen. He's in Geneva, writing particularly towards France at the beginning. And he, he mentions, he's writing for them, very many of whom I knew to be hungering and thirsting for Christ but I saw very few of them had been truly imbued, even with a slight knowledge of Christ. So the Institutes, this major work of theology, why did he write it? Well, you tell me, whatever. But he said he wrote it because his own countrymen did not know Christ. Or when you look at Luther, wrote scads of things, but he mentions the gospel must be publicly preached to move them. He's just been talking about all these people who go to the churches and the services and they know nothing of Christ. He said they do not believe, are not yet Christians. So his great emphasis is now the gospel wants to be preached to move them to believe and become Christians. If you look at Calvin's sermons, so I took a good period of time to redo a version of his sermons on First Timothy. And in the old version, the prayers at the end had not been translated. It just says the prayer begins and it says something like, et cetera, and leaves you. But when you look at them, he's closing just about every sermon, praying for the nations praying for people to come to faith, for the gospel to go to the nations. When you look at Luther, his hymns, we sometimes know that he wrote a lot of hymns. And his hymns are full of praying for the gospel to go to the nations, for the conversion of the heathen. We could, I could give you some examples. Or then when he's teaching people to pray. Because again, these are pastors. They're providing for the worship. They're teaching people how to pray. And as he prays through the Lord's Prayer, using it as a model, he's regularly, when he talks about praying for the Lord's kingdom to come, we're praying for the gospel to go to places it has not yet been. We're praying for the conversion of the heathen. That's not in his seminary discussion. That's in his little tract when he's teaching the barber who, who asks him, Brother Martin, I have trouble praying. How do I pray? Well, here it is. This isn't his basic stuff. Or Martin Bucer is rebuking Christendom. Probably the reason the Turks are here and they're going to destroy us is because we didn't act zealously enough to take the gospel to the Turks. So, we could go more and more and more, but yes, that's, it's just center in what they're doing.
1: Mm, that's helpful context. You know, can you talk kind of deeper into this question, some of the ways that the reformers helped fuel mission efforts? And then maybe conversely, are there any ways that they hindered mission efforts?
0: Yeah, good question. The first way, just essentially, and this may seem obvious, but it's important. First way they fueled mission efforts was by recovering the gospel. If you think people are saved by earning, and that, you know, some people will critique, but here we are by earning the favor of God, by getting grace, which is a thing that you get by doing the different aspects of the church, well, you can't do missions with that. I mean, you can, it would be false. It's not the gospel. So by recovering the gospel, they recover the message, which is the power of God and salvation which is then the motive and the drive for this. So that's the essential thing, the message, the power, the drive, what's going on there. And then the things I began to mention, just the teaching and the training of the people. When you find out later that the first mission trip to go to the Americas comes out of Geneva, it's not really surprising when you see that there's a church that is regularly preaching, praying, and singing about the gospel going to the ends of the earth, well, surprise, out of that church comes this kind of effort. Those are the kind of things, and then I'm going a little field, but this idea, which you can find in almost every standard mission textbook will tell you the reformers weren't concerned with missions. So I'm being iconoclastic kind of here, and unapologetically so. But they miss what Luther, to take the earliest one from the beginning, he begins to train pastors, and Melanchthon joins in it, and This idea, this contrary idea comes from Gustav Warnick, uh, well-intended, no-doubt brother, German father of missiology. He says, well, they didn't do mission work, but, you know, we shouldn't hold it against them too bad. But he misses this pastor training thing. This wasn't just to put people in established churches. There weren't that many established faithful churches. They're sending them across national lines because you didn't have the unified Germany. So Saxony is, in our kind of conception today, a nation, and you go over to this other area, that's another nation. to are sending them across national lines to preach the gospel, many of whom will die. They know that when they go, they'll be executed. Same thing with uh, in Geneva. We have the register of the pastors. That's sort of their uh, minutes of their meetings of the pastors. And they record sending brother so-and-so to this region, sending brother so-and-so to this region. And the notes are incomplete because it wasn't safe to record all of it. But in one year, for example, there was 100 men sent in different places, including France, where they're going as secret agents to preach the gospel. So we have all of those basic things are coming out of this time. Now, to be fair, you asked, did they do anything to hinder it? And I don't know of anything big picture, though, of course, they're human. And so I'm sure there are errors along the way. But Warnick says they didn't do proper missions because they didn't form a mission board, which really is kind of humorous when you read it yourself and going, oh, wow. So he had a very tight anachronistic definition. And then other people understandably have just followed his assessment without dealing with the primary sources.
1: So that's really helpful. You know, that's and I do think there are some contextual realities sometimes that we forget, even connected with that as well. I mean, you think about the geographic location where they were a little bit more landlocked in some cases where they were. The reality is that both of them were at times kind of in a sense under attack. And so when you're on the run you know, you're not able to kind of give time, energy, and attention to some of these kinds of things when you're thinking about survival. And, you know, you think about those who were doing at this time, this era, cross-cultural, cross-ocean travel was pretty much limited to maybe those that were connected with the Roman Catholic Church because Spain and Portugal were kind of the, the sea powers of the day. And so, they were the ones who were sending people on boats across the world and We're still in a time period where there's not a whole lot of people that are crossing oceans and these kinds of things. So I think it's also helpful just to note some of the contextual realities as well, that just because they were sending people to countrysides and other villages and other regions where they were and they weren't crossing oceans doesn't mean that they weren't mindful for mission.
0: That's right. And this is a particular challenge for Americans in our thinking. You know, I can drive, I think it takes me four hours if I were to come see you and I've moved from one state to another. There's a few cultural differences. Sweet tea would be a little harder to find, but basically it's the same culture. It's not true in Europe. It especially wasn't true in Europe in the 16th century. Even with what we think is Germany, those were different countries with different cultures. When those guys are going out from Wittenberg and from Geneva, they are doing cross-cultural work. They haven't crossed an ocean, So it's easy for us now in the modern world to think, well, if you don't cross an ocean, you didn't really go to a different people group. That's a different time. So you're right. And then all these other pieces are in there.
2: Yeah, that's good. The Great Commission is a call to go. And a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu bgs.
1: Okay, I want to think about, you mentioned some of this about the mission strategy. So can you talk some about the primary focus of their mission efforts during this time? Were they primarily trying to reach out to Roman Catholics? Because again, this is the Protestant Reformation, or were they trying to reach people from other world religions? Can you talk some about that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, it is, first of all, trying to reach people that we would broadly have considered Roman Catholic. When I quoted Luther and Calvin earlier, they're talking about people who are going to the established churches, but have no knowledge of the gospel. So I want to say yes, and a clarification. Yes, people who by name were Roman Catholic. But when we again hear that today, we might think of that in terms of kind of sheep stealing or something like that. But even the Roman Catholic Church today you know since then has reckoned with the fact that there was this widespread really bad ignorance of the gospel even by their own understanding so yes it was people who were part of the established church in a sense but it's not you know just like well i got some presbyterians to come over and get baptized at first baptist or something this is a question you want to ask later but it really is an example of a cultural Christianity, where people kind of know some of the language and some of the rituals, but they have no knowledge of Christ. That is their primary place. Although there's a lot of discussion amongst the Reformers about reaching the Turks. I mentioned Buster with that a minute ago. Luther sometimes is criticized for not doing enough there. And Warnock, one place, criticizes him because what Luther says is, basically, you need to know the gospel. The Turks are knocking at our door because there's a great fear that they could be invaded, the Turks have invaded a good part of Europe. He says, you need to know it. And if you get captured, you need to know the gospel so you can share it with your captors. And Warnick says, well, that's not actually organized missions. Uh, Okay, whatever, I'll take it. So there's that. And then I mentioned the uh, mission to Brazil from Geneva, which falls apart. It was an effort, it was unsuccessful. They had a traitor in the midst, but it was an effort to take the gospel to a totally almost totally unknown land. So it does, it's starting with the world around them, which is primarily folks in Roman Catholic churches. And then it has eyes beyond that.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. You know, we've been taking this journey through missions history and there's a, a mission historian, Kenneth Scott LaTourette, mm-hmm. who has a, a title, he has a seven volume set on the history of mission. And one of the books in the middle is roughly from 500 to 1500. He calls it the thousand years of uncertainty kind of talking about just some of the struggle from early church as we lead up through middle ages up towards reformation. But we know that God used the reformation, the process of reformation in a powerful way to really kind of ignite a new fire for global mission. And so can you talk some about how the reformation paved the way for the modern missions movement that was going to come in centuries later?
0: Things don't just come out of nowhere. What's the soil from which things emerge? And so... First of all, though I've said this a lot, it is the recovery of the gospel itself. You can't have a mission movement unless you have this gospel. You can have a movement, but it won't be missions, won't have the power, won't have the message. So that's the primary thing they do. And then we kind of know that. But I think we've often missed the deep evangelistic passion in the sermons, as well as the prayers and the songs of the Reformers, which is leading directly to the great century of missions, because it's moving out. And rather than seeing, as some people say, despite all the great work of the reformers, it's just shocking, they did nothing on missions. But instead seeing that what's going on is this, the gospel is being recovered, and it's boiling, if you will, and coming out, and it's spreading through Europe, getting out of it a little bit, but that's what eventually causes the great outbreak, if you will, of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. It starts there with that recovery of the gospel, the passion for souls that we see there.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're exactly right. I mean, there is no great century of mission. There is no modern missions movement without the recovery of the gospel, without the teaching of the apostles relying on the authority of scripture, all these kinds of things. So in many ways, yeah, they paved the way for the Moravians who come after them, for William Carey, for, you know, many, many others. We're grateful for that tradition, that legacy. I want to move now into more kind of rapid fire questions just get some kind of quick thoughts from you. So maybe two to three books on this era that you would recommend, some of your favorites?
0: Yeah, particularly on this issue, one that's not quite as well-known, but it's, uh, I don't have the publisher written down, but it's easily accessible. Scott Hendricks, *Recultivating the Vineyard, The Reformation Agendas of Christianization. And Hendricks just does a great job of showing that the purpose of the reformers is to re-Christianize Christendom. I'm going to steal the full thunder, but that is what then I think shows us how particularly useful the reformers are to us right now, because where do we find ourselves? Find ourselves in the West, in a situation that Christian ideas are around, but most people don't know the gospel, and we struggle, and we talk about, you know, the biggest challenge is getting people lost before they can get saved. Hendricks is talking about exactly that's what the reformers were doing, and when I read him, I think, whoa, we need to do more looking at this and saying What can we learn from them? And no doubt there's, they did this, we should do this, or they should do this. Oh, that didn't work as well, or whatever. He does a good job of showing us that's what they were doing, and we can learn from it.
1: Hmm. That's good. What about your favorite Reformation figure?
0: Yeah, that's hard. So he even asked me a couple books, and I only told you one. And now you asked me one person, I'm going to tell you several, but (laughs) I mean... Luther is so much fun. He's he's that fiery guy, maybe that college friend that you know is always going to be fun to be around, but he's going to embarrass you. He's going to overstate. He's going to go off his rocker somewhere, but you can't help but love him for the passion, determination. The and then Calvin, people know him as uh, a cold, logical thinker, which was kind of the derogatory comment that really starts with the Catholic church. But the hardworking, dogged determination, despite uh, illness and other things, and the heart for his people—people people don't tend to know that. But when, when the other pastors have to restrain him from going into the homes of people with the plague, and various people are, are running away, and he's saying, "What does it mean to be a pastor if you don't minister to people in their greatest need?" Knox with his also fire determination, Bucer, mentoring people with a heart for uh, uniting different factions—that's a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's good. This next question is a fill in the blank question. So, one of the most neglected, but in your opinion, would be you would say is one of the most critical or essential aspects of the Reformation that people don't often talk about would be blank.
0: Yeah. Well, given our conversation, I'd say uh, their heart permissions, the idea of missions. And I said at the beginning, I really think that comes from missing the pastoral heart. We tend to think of this as an exercise in systematic theology which we wrongly have separated from ministry. So people think of, you know, you do theology in depth or you do ministry. And the fact that these are united there, that this was not some egghead discussion, but Luther gets so mad and posts his 95 theses because he has church members whom he's trying to lead to Christ. And they're saying, hey, I don't have to worry about all this stuff anymore. I've got this little piece of paper, this indulgence says I can do whatever I want and I'm all good. It's the passion for souls, both in shepherding Mm. and in evangelizing, which is the heartbeat of this whole thing. And I think people often miss that.
1: Yeah, that's good. All right. You've already alluded to this some, but this is last question. One, two, three things that we can learn from the era of the Reformation that would be applicable and timely for us today.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, as you said, I've alluded to this, but the first thing I'd say is that any great missions, evangelism movement must have robust doctrine. So again, that not dividing. We sometimes think, well, if we don't do too much theology, we can be united. If we don't do too much theology; we can do more ministry. But that's like saying, if we don't put too much gas in the engine, we can go further. But holding these together. Now, and to be fair, one of the reasons people think that is because some folks do go simply into egg-headed abstraction, and it doesn't affect life. In which case, they need to be the pastoral epistles again. But the uniting of this to see that great power, I think, is something we. Can and should learn. And then perseverance. That's just one of the things that has drawn me to Reformation stories and history again and again. It's one of the reasons I can get annoyed when I see people in the West and our relative comfort taking pot shots at brothers and sisters who were under attack when Luther has the ban, where people who just, in their regular understanding, will think they are serving God if they kill him. And when he trains guys, you know, when you were in my class and we're doing things and you graduated and went out, I didn't think Paul may be killed within the first few weeks of where he goes, but they knew that they get reports back regularly and yet they go Hmm. the work that they do. We're wimps compared to these brothers and sisters and we do well to know their stories and just the pastoral heart. But the last one I'll mention just to be try to not be so long, is that point earlier from the Scott Hendricks book. They were dealing with a culture that thought they were Christians but didn't know the gospel. That is where we are in the West today. And so I think there's a lot we can mine from that. Mm.
1: Dr. Van Ness, thank you so much for your time for the conversation today.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode.
0: Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu BGS, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.